0: Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Deutsche Grammophon's international podcast series. I'm Sarah Willis, and as I believe I have mentioned before, I just love podcasting with the Yellow Label's star-studded cast of musicians. Today's guest signed to Deutsche Grammophon when he was just 15 years old and is still going strong 11 years later, and he's here today to tell me why. At least I hope he will. Jan Liszewski, welcome to the Deutsche Grammophon international podcast series.
1: It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I just can't believe we've never met in person before. We seem to pass like ships in the night, in the Philharmonie, in the Elbe Philharmonie.
1: well until we get the chance to meet that's always how it is <laughs> musicians <laughs>
0: it's, it's funny yeah huh? isn't it? it it's sort of these big concerts halls are just full of such incredible musicians going in and out and a soloist one in the morning and then the next one in the night so yeah i hope we make the same concert at the same time one of these days <laughs> that
1: would be wonderful
0: <laughs> <laughs> so where are you today we're talking via zoom where are you talking to me from
1: I've just gotten home in Calgary, Canada, after quite a long and exhilarating tour with solo recital at the Konzerthaus in Vienna at the Grosser Saal, and a big tour with the London Philharmonic Orchestra through the concert halls of Germany. So now it's nice to be back home in very cold but uh, sunny Calgary. That's usually how it is during the winter.
0: When you get up in the morning, do you go straight to the piano or does it take you a while to make yourself sit down and do your scales? Because pianists well, love scales. Uh,
1: yeah. uh, no. Pianists definitely don't <laughs> love scales. At least really? at least not this pianist. This pianist does not play any scales.
0: What? You're kidding it. me.
1: You're kidding no, no, no. me. No scales. I mean, I have plenty of scales in the pieces that I play. And those, I think, are enough. I don't need to do any more because I like the practical ones that I encounter in any case. And in the morning, I'm after you know brushing my teeth, having a tea and so forth. Yes, the piano is actually my probably my first destination. It's my favorite destination in the morning. If I'm here at home, I have sunrisers right outside the window. I can enjoy seeing that beginning of the day and the focus is very different. I can easily sit an hour or two at the piano without any distractions, which later in the day becomes harder and harder.
0: You're talking to a horn player here who has to warm up with all sorts of weird noises, you know, sort of... And we need that for our muscles to warm up in the mornings before moving on and playing more all day. That's basically what we do. And at the end of the day, then we maybe might play a tune. Uh, but um, how does a pianist warm up? Do you do your stretches? If you don't play scales, you just go straight into a piece?
1: I just go straight into a piece. Actually, this is I'm so jealous. one of the one of the most <laughs> challenging aspects of being a pianist, because of course, in the great concert halls, generally we will have a piano in the dressing room, but not always. There are many concert halls which don't have them. For many reasons, for example, Munich has the Isar Philharmonie, which is a new but temporary hall. In that hall, there are very, very small dressing rooms, and there is no piano, so you no cannot piano. warm up. You're no, kidding. no, no, you can't warm up before the concert. You encounter that a lot of times. If not, I wouldn't say the majority of the time, but it's very frequent. So you have to be able to go out on stage without having warmed up whatsoever. And for that reason, actually, it's a good thing in the morning to sort of also have that same routine to be able to play something sort of straight off the bat and, and not suffer through it.
0: You could not do that to horn players.
1: No. <laughs> but I guess but, our I mean, instrument
0: you, is a lot easier to transport.
1: <laughs> absolutely. And you can hold it in your hand. And if not, at least you can have the mouthpiece. Uh, so ah, you know. Right?
0: You know about yes. us. Yeah, Very true. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you're lucky you're not here in person because, you know, I would have made you do the horn challenge
1: uh-oh, uh-oh, <laughs> I don't think I would have passed.
0: <laughs> yeah, but the thing about the Horn Challenge is the worse people are, the more we love them. But in the times of COVID, I don't go passing my horn around. We'll have to wait <laughs> till everyone's been vaccinated a million times before, before exactly. we start that up. <laughs> (laughs) So Jan, I said in the introduction that you signed with Deutsche Grammophon when you were age 15 and I saw this incredibly cute film about you, about saying, I don't want to be called a prodigy. I don't like it. You were this cute little kid and you didn't like being called a prodigy or a genius. But 15 is quite young to sign to such a huge record label.
1: It's incredible when you think back. I mean, I'm 26, which is, I guess... Ancient. Uh, r- Ancient. R- r- well, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I guess in the world of classical music, it's still quite young. And at the same time, when I look back at how much I've experienced, simply experienced, I don't mean even done, simply the, the amazing places I've performed and, and many of them multiple times, it's crazy to think. I don't even know. It feels like I've been doing this for ages and at the same time, not not really. When I was 15... And signing to Deutsche Grandfone, of course, it was a bit of a pinch me moment. But at the same time, coming from Calgary, coming from a non-musical family, not being enrolled in a famous university or conservatory, it perhaps was slightly less shocking, if you know what I mean. I wasn't sort of surrounded by this environment all the time. So I could follow my own path. And at the same time, I simply embraced it. That's why I didn't really like being called a prodigy. It's because that automatically puts some sort of label or some pressure on you, some certain way of looking at somebody. And I just felt that I had my own way of doing things and I really liked what I did. But I also had to still prove myself. And right away, giving that sort of prodigy means that you are very good, but you also have this sort of negative connotation with it. And I, I don't like things that right away put you into a category, into a box.
0: Yeah, I I get it. I totally understand not that any horn player has ever been called a prodigy before. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But uh, no, that's very grown up for 15. I mean, it's a good way to think. On the other hand, when you've been doing something for so long, 11 years, and you've recorded a lot, you've been signed for 11 years, are there pieces where you'd say, oh, I'd like to go back and do that again? Because what will you do for the next 50, 60, 70 years?
1: Well, the pianists are luckily not, horn players and the <laughs> Luckily, in is the, the word. In, yes well in the sense that we have endless repertoire I, I mean our repertoire really goes on our solo repertoire our concerto repertoire goes on almost to eternity i don't think through a pianist's lifetime you could play even say all the pieces by beethoven or all the pieces by chopin and i don't mean play play through but i mean properly dedicate time to and, and perform and really have a deep thought about so we don't really run the risk of running out of things to record. But at the same time, whenever I go into the studio or whenever I am recording something, I want it to be of the highest quality. I want it to be something that I'll be happy with 10 years down the road. Now, being happy with and playing it the same way are two very different things. Of course, basically the moment you've left the studio, you have a different idea and you would probably record it in a different way. But that is completely natural. If that doesn't happen, that means that you don't really... I live with the music because you're just sort of perfecting it, which is absolutely impossible, of
0: course. What makes you happy? Recording? Performing? I mean, I read so much about you in so many interviews and listened to all your wonderful music, and it's all just so happy and nice and great. You do such (laughs) amazing things. What makes you happy? I mean, the piano, obviously, but uh, other stuff. Sunrises in the morning?
1: (laughs) Sunrises in the morning. Living life. Actually, I'm privileged. I'm blessed to be a person who basically wakes up in the morning on the right side of the bed happy. (laughs) And I have no, uh, sort of, I don't have down days. I enjoy playing, certainly, and I enjoy sharing music on stage. I enjoy the challenge that it presents and the possibilities and the uncertainties and the unknowns. It's fun to be playing, even just like this past tour, seven concerts, eight days, different cities, and every time it was different. Perhaps slightly on purpose, but also simply by the way things evolve naturally when you're on stage. And that is rewarding because you discover different things. So in that sense, I prefer to be on stage than in a studio if I could choose one or the other. But in the studio, then I have a completely different mindset. Of course, I'm also playing for an audience, an audience that isn't there. I feel like I have a bit of a larger or stronger responsibility than to what I'm doing. It's not as fleeting. When you're on stage, the moments are fleeting and, and you have this sort of uninhibited vision of what you do because you are fully aware that you are sharing it with those who are in the hall at the moment. While in the studio, you're fully aware that you're sharing it with who knows how many people and for how long down the road. And those are two very different things. But then you focus very much on the music and you also have a different approach, I guess, to what you're doing. And that can be a positive, that can be a negative. And I've navigated those feelings on my own through the years of playing and being in the studio. And I've sort of come to the conclusion that both have their ups and downs. And I will certainly embrace live recordings for the future because you have that energy then also when you listen to that recording. And on the other hand, the studio recordings, sometimes you can do things that aren't possible necessarily in the concert hall. So there's always advantages and disadvantages.
0: Is it a lonely life being a pianist? Because as a horn player, we're part of a pack, you know, we, we never hunt alone, <laughs> or rarely. <laughs> you know, that, that's just orchestras, you know, like you were just on tour with the LPO. And, um, you know, I know what a great lot of people they are. But you know, it's a big mass of people that you're touring with. But do you get lonely as a pianist? Are pianists lonely people?
1: I'm not so sure they're lonely. I mean, I'm certainly not a socialite in the sense of being out and about with people all the time, but I have very close friends and I'm happy to keep that uh, circle very small (laughs) and not to be too big. But at the same time, if we're talking simply about being a pianist and being on stage, I find that the two worlds playing with an orchestra and playing solo are completely different. And of course, then there's a chamber music side, which for the moment I'm leaving aside because my main life is solo recitals and playing with orchestras. And, and it's almost like two different professions. When you're playing with an orchestra, you have the inspiration, you have the, the sound, the sort of limitations too, because you are working with other people. But on the other hand, when you're alone on stage, when you're playing a solo recital, You have the freedom, yes, but you also have the complete responsibility for everything that goes on. And so you have these very different worlds and the way I play in many ways is different. And I find that if I'm going back and forth from a recital to an orchestral performance and back, I have to really work hard to adjust in how I approach the music so that I'm not too introverted, I'm not too extroverted, and so that I have the sort of the right frame of mind when I'm working on it. And that's interesting because from the outside perspective, I don't think people would really realize how different it is, how different it feels to be on stage.
0: But also like a solo recital. And we're going to get to that in a second because the E album that's coming out with Deutsche Grammophon, my mother didn't even know what an E album was. I had to explain it. Does your mother know what an E album is?
1: Well, yes, but, but now by now she knows.
0: <laughs> um, it's a recording of your solo recital in Wurzburg. Wurzburg, can you say that? Wurzburg, it's a hard word. Würzburg. Very good. Transla- <laughs> Translated, it means, uh, yeah, spice castle. <laughs> it's a couple of years back, but I was wondering, watching that, it looked very hot in there, by the way. <laughs> My mm-hmm. goodness, I was wondering how. It must be very difficult to sort of choreograph an evening of a piano recital of all these different pieces. Well, I mean, there weren't that many different pieces, but many movements of the twinkle, twinkle little star. Uh, A lot of variations in there, Mozart's theme of variations. And then what else did you play? Gaspar de la Nuit and some (laughs) Schumann. And, uh, not Penderecki, Paderewski. 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 Oh, I get confused. You with your good Polish heritage, I'm sure you don't get them as mixed up as I do, but it's like a, a whole, it's, it's like an arch the whole evening. I mean, do you feel like, I don't know, like a DJ, a club DJ sort of builds up his audience, but then he lets them calm down again and lets them go completely crazy, but calms them down. Do you think about that in setting up a piano recital?
1: Well, I have no experience in clubs nor as a DJ, so I can't compare to that. But certainly there is a aspect of putting together a program as an art. I think that when you're putting together a program, you have to think, of course, about the works you want to present. That's number one. But how to present them is number two. And in the case of the Würzburg recital, it was very important for me to present Gaspard Nuit, But how do you make it so that It's part of a greater program and not just, okay, there's Gaspar, and then there's some other things that yeah, it's really
0: hard to put things around that. Funnily enough, that was my set piece for my music A-level in England. So, yeah, we had to take Dean completely apart. So I was really happy to hear it again. Mm, <laughs> but, that, but it's such a, <laughs> yeah, well, talking about your scales, I completely understand what you mean. There are pieces that are just full of so many notes and that's certainly one of them. But it's such a monumental, huge piece. And then to sort of bookend that that's yeah It's tough
1: and that actually you also learn about that the most i think when you're in the concert hall not about putting it together because by that point of course it's long been put together and you can do nothing about it or very little about it but how to pace yourself and where to bring certain things out where to sort of engage the audience more where you need to where you're forced to where you have that lack of focus and it will be different every day too but there is something to be said that the first time I'm playing a recital, I go out and I'm sort of really in deep water. I'm trying to figure out for myself, you know, where where I need to take a pause, where I need to take a breath, where which pieces I will go straight from one to the other, where I can relax a little bit, where I lose the audience's focus. And Do you sense that when you lose
0: them? Is it oh, when the bags started, start rustling?
1: It's not only bags, it's just that ambience in the air. But yes, you do sense it. And you sense it also between the pieces, and it doesn't always work the same. There are certain works that I will play, and sometimes, for example, after one of the Nachstuke by Schumann, some of the audience will laugh, but not always. And you don't know when you have that effect of humor. And if it's just a matter of the audience being different, a different country, or a different environment, more serious, more formal. Or if it's something that you did, but you don't really know that. And so you you sort of aim for certain things, but you don't know if you always will achieve them. When you're putting together a program at home, I mean, it's very difficult because you just look at timings and keys and the works you want to put together, but you don't know how it will feel, how it will sound. And you learn that on stage and you hope the first time you're playing it that it actually works. And then you adjust things along the way. And the current recital program that I'm playing right now Incorporate Chopin's nocturnes. And that was another challenge because how do you program 21 nocturnes? I'm not going to play them all, but 21 nocturnes... Uh, that, would have
0: been, that would have been my next question. Are you going to play them all?
1: <laughs> no, but how do you even program 10 or 5 or 6? Yeah. How? Do you just put in a few opuses and then put in something else in the program? How do you make it so that it's not just a recital program with a little bit of nocturnes included? That was a big thought for me. And I finally decided to incorporate them or or sort of uh, juxtapose them with Chopin's Etudes Opus 10. And so I'm bouncing back between an etude and a nocturne or two etudes or two nocturnes. And it's turned out to be quite a fascinating program because you don't lose the audience's interest. You give them a little bit of contrast in between the rather placid and delicate and melancholy nocturnes. But you also don't take away from their importance or their strengths. And that is one of the biggest challenges and one of the gifts. I love putting together programs and I love putting together something that is more interesting than just, you know, a Beethoven Sonata with uh, something else.
0: (laughs) But I'm happy that you say that because I read in one interview where you said you definitely don't want to ever go a crossover route but you like to be different obviously in these sort of things like programming Chopin against Chopin but as you say, you know, completely different atmosphere in those etudes and nocturnes. Also what's really nice with Chopin is I find there's always one in there, like when I was listening to your Complete Nocturnes album I mean, I'm a horn player, come on I don't know many nocturnes but there's always just when you're thinking okay, then one Comes that you know and you think, Oh, I know that one, yes exactly <laughs> you know what i mean' There's, yeah. <laughs> they're these best loved of Chopin's pieces, and I think that's really good to keep people's interest going, absolutely you know? and Give this them something is the they know
1: other aspect of why I recorded the complete nocturnes because it's a double c d set and of course, as far as streaming, well then we could pick those those favorite ones that you just mentioned, and probably would have very little impact on the overall sort of gravity of the recording, but for me, it was very important to include all of them, because you want to then take advantage of the fame and the celebrity status of those that we really love to showcase the ones that are not as known. And one example is the Opus Postumus in C minor, which is a spectacular nocturne, so simple, so elegant. And when I was playing it as an encore recently on the LPO tour, Everybody was asking, what is this? It was Chopin, but what is that? I've never heard it before. And everybody's excited about it. And because somehow it never attained that celebrity status, but that doesn't mean it's any worse. In fact, it's probably one of the most beautiful nocturnes. And to show it in that sort of delicate way without championing it, so to say, just showcasing it, uh, gently showing people this is what also Chopin's nocturnes are, is a wonderful possibility when you're putting together a recording like that.
0: Why are you good at Chopin? It's not just because of your name, right?
1: No, I mean, I, I was born in Canada. My parents were not musicians. I never studied in Poland or was a Polish teacher. And I think that my affinity for his music certainly comes from me as a pianist and as a musician loving his music and nothing less, nothing more. Not because of my background, not because of anything else. Perhaps it comes even more so from my particular tone and phrasing and sound affinity in the piano, what I want to achieve is very much aligned with what Chopin needs or requires from the pianist. So Chopin was able to push the boundaries of the piano as far as lyricism is concerned, as far as these melodies, the lines, how he shapes a melodic line on a percussive instrument is unique and I think is in a league of its own. We have different composers doing different interesting things, but that melody capability of writing only pretty much existed in Chopin to this extent. So that is one thing I really always loved about his music. And in fact, when I sit down at a piece by Chopin, even if I've never played it before, it somehow right away feels natural. I already, even if I can't play it, even if half the notes are completely wrong, I have an idea of how I want to play it. And that's different than if I'd sit down, say, at a piece of Prokofiev. Then uh, I'm deciphering each note. And after I've learned all the notes and after I've spent a lot of time with it, then maybe I'll have an idea of how to play it. But with Chopin, it's sort of the opposite. I know, and then I can learn the notes. (laughs)
0: It's your thing. Your thing. Yes,
1: <laughs> and and I
0: was wondering I was wondering like for a young pianist people always want to play Maninoff and often, Tchaikovsky mm. and Grieg and all these big huge things. So uh, maybe it does have something to do with the touch of an individual player. Because, I mean, we know this, but a lot of people maybe not realize how the touch of a pianist varies. There was this thing on German TV, it was called Wettendass. It's a sort of bet. You can bet on this. And this one guy bet that mm-hmm. he could guess from 20 different recordings, which of the opening, there was the opening of Beethoven Piano Concerto, Number. which which one starts by itself? Four. Four. That's right. That he could tell which pianist it was just by the touch. And he did. And it was so amazing. And I thought, my goodness, they all sound completely different. But what is it? Is it the weight of the fingers? Is it your own idea of sound that is transformed? It it was really an eye opener for me.
1: Somehow it is. It's certainly about, I think, what you want your end result to be. And while physically... A piano is a piano. And the most interesting actually would be then to compare different pianists playing on the same instrument to see how different it would be. But it would still be rather different. It would be perhaps less so than on recordings which were done at different times on different instruments. But when you have a certain approach, I think you always sort of live with it, or at least at that point you play in that way. And you will have Brendel, who has a very different sound than Berenboim, who has a very different sound than Zimmerman or Argerich. And I think you can compare all of these people well, you can recognize them almost instantly. And then there's certain pianists who have a trademark sound. And I think that trademark is certainly what helps certain pianists to have a name because they're recognized for what they do. I mean, you have violinists, they also have trademark sounds. Of course, those are highly influenced by what instrument they end up playing. Same with pianists, but we don't always get to choose our instrument. So it's interesting.
0: Yeah, that's a tough one, not being able to choose your instruments before a concert. Sometimes you have the luxury. The Philharmonia, I'm sure you got to choose which one you got to play them. But I always feel sorry for pianists having that worry about is the piano going to be okay? Where are you going to? So your trademark sound would be a Chopin sound more than a Ratmaninoff sound, definitely.
1: Well, more simplistic, I think the elegance and purity are probably my chief goals or ambitions when I'm playing is to attain sort of a clarity without the sort of over romantic over peddled over whatever over harsh certainly sounds Over-baked. Uh, over baked yeah. over exactly <laughs> whatever you, whatever adjectives you want to use the the sound in the end i think is the piano can have a beautiful sound it can also have a very ugly sound and i want to stay more on the beautiful side i think
0: yeah. Well, I think maybe if next time you're in Berlin and we take you out to Berghain, which is a nightclub here, and show you how a DJ—I mean, I'm not a big nightclub goer either—but I have experienced it how a DJ will whip up a crowd of people into absolute oblivion and then calm them down a bit. I have a friend who's doing that, you know, regularly. But he's putting bits of Bach in between the completely crazy techno pieces, and they love it. You know, people seem to love it, and they really chill out to that, and then they go crazy again. I think if we did that with you, then you might start. Playing Bartok and and uh, (laughs) and and hence and No promises. Well, congratulations on your nocturnes. It's old news now, but I have it in my hand and I absolutely love it. And uh, it was a huge success and people are still talking about it. And your E! album, which is coming out now of the concert in Würzburg. So it was really interesting to hear how you prepare for a recital and also working out what to put in there because, yeah, it is audience interaction as well. Even if they look like they're just sitting there, most of them are like almost on stage with you, don't you think?
1: Mm -hmm. And that would be the ideal audience, certainly.
0: But not in that hall, not in Wurzburg, because it was very warm that day yeah, when they were filming. Warm. Absolutely. I
1: mean, it's an old castle. What, what can we do? We have a beautiful old castle, but lots of things have changed since then. One of them, the climate. And the other thing that I think we're not as accustomed to simply dealing with the climate.
0: Yeah, totally. And then you're going on tour with your Chopin, with your Schumann. What else is coming with you?
1: I have over 30 recitals with my new program all around the world. Uh, So I'm really looking forward to that, playing it and showcasing the nocturnes in different concert halls, experiencing different pianos as we spoke about different ambiences and also exploring these pieces more. Certainly I'll have much better perspective on them than I did when I was recording. And that is completely natural. And other than that, lots of orchestral performances next summer. Some projects that have been rescheduled from year Past passed with the unspeakable cancellations that we've had in the past years Such as playing all Beethoven concertos and other wonderful exciting things that are coming up I'm very busy and and hoping that we can all be safe and healthy and keep on enjoying making live music for live audiences who can enjoy it themselves too
0: Amen to that thanks Jan so I will hopefully see you in person at our next podcast or I'll see you on the dance floor in Bergheim and, bear kind and we'll, <laughs> no we'll see what the deed is <laughs> We'll see about that. Well, anyway, backstage at the Philharmonie would be a good place to start. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Jan.
1: Pleasure to be here. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you.
0: One last thing. If you enjoyed this podcast with Jan and would like to hear more fabulous episodes or keep up to date on future ones, do subscribe to the Deutsche Grammophon International Podcast Series wherever you listen to your podcasts from. I'm Sarah Willis, and I'll see you next month. Bye-bye. Der Podcast der Deutschen Grammophon ist eine Produktion von Auf die Ohren.